And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live, I think, from the gleaming Streamlines Studios, state-of-the-art studios of that. Of course, the state-of-the-art ain't what it used to be. Following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw. First 90 seconds of every show devoted to Howard Lapidus's microphone cord. Ladies and gentlemen, we're so thrilled and delighted to have with us today Seth Ferranti. Thanks, thanks for having me on. He also used to sell pot and acid when he was in college. I got to hear the story about how you got busted. Oh, how I got busted, man. That's a, uh, that's really a crazy one. You know, I, I was kind of trying to step back from, from doing stuff, you know, because I've been doing stuff for about three years straight, you know, from about the age of 16 to 19. But a lot of my buddies, they, they wanted to keep doing stuff, so I hooked it up so they could get acid shipped in, and then they got busted, and then it was just like, you know, like dominoes. Oh, they rolled over on you? Yeah, I mean, it's all it was all like upper-class, you know, suburban kids, so, I mean, you know, I, I don't, looking back now, I mean, I don't really blame them, because it's not, I want to say, like, you know, they're just trying to sell drugs. They wouldn't say, like, you know, like they were hard criminals or from the streets or do anything like that. That makes you know? sense to me. I mean, when I was going to college back in the 60s, there was a lot of people that augmented their, you know, being able to pay for their extracurricular activities by selling pot or selling acid. Seth, Seth, this is Howard. I have a question for you. You were, it was quite a big operation you had going there, and you were, what, 17, 18, 19 years old? Yeah, I was I, I was real young, you know. I started about, about 16, I started getting into it, and uh, I, I don't know, it was weird. You know, people just trusted me, and I, I advanced it you know, real rapidly, and I kind of, you know, jumped over people, and you know, where it was once I was like an underling, and then it was like I was the one kind of calling the shots. So, how do you how do you learn how to get your supply at that age? I don't know, it's just, I mean, a lot of it, I think about it now, you know, as a, as a, as a middle-aged man, you know, I don't tend to go out and stay out, but when you do go out, you know, like young people like to go out and go to clubs and go to different places and do stuff like that, you're putting yourself in situations to meet different people it might be in the same line of work, you know, or might know people in the same line of work or trying to do the same thing, and then you kind of meet by reputation, mm -hmm. you know, and things just advance, you know. But that's how, you know, a lot of it happens. Or, you know, you know, sometimes you might just know someone from when you're growing up. But Yeah, I've talked to other people that follow the dead around it, you know, selling the, the T-shirts. They'd meet people there that later they would hook up as far as selling acid yeah, I mean, they used to sell a lot on the lot, though, too. They they would fly it in all the time. You know, they would, they would fly in, like, 75, you know, 25 grams of crystal into different shows, you know, Pittsburgh, you know, East Coast, Hartford, Connecticut, wherever, you know, and they would lay it all out and sell it on the lot, but you could also make connections. You know, they used to do mail order. That's what I, I used to get it mailed directly from San Francisco. Well, were, you, were you selling, like, uh, water sheets? I mean, I, I, I was getting, like, a hundred sheets, which is basically like uh, it's like ten thousand hits of acid. Yeah, you know, I was getting that at a time. You know, when I was so, but it wasn't a big money maker. It was more a thing I did it because you know I, I always felt like marijuana, LSD, and stuff like that should be legal. You know, even back yeah. then. So that's why I tell people all the time. I don't really, I don't consider myself a criminal. You know, I was an outlaw. I stood up for something that I thought was wrong. You know, and I and and still, you know. Look at the world now. You know, it's kind of funny. You know, I even feel kind of justified, you know, 25-something years later. You know, look what we got, you know, as long as uh, I don't think Trump can fuck it up too much, but, you know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, quite a difference of people being put away for a long time for for pot years ago and for acid. And now, of course, uh, once again, they've uh, 
recreated the uh, uh, alcoholism treatment experiments with LSD that were done in Scandinavia, and uh, they found, wow, this seems to work. <laughs> How does that uh, explain that, uh, bro? You, you went way to the left. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask wait, you wait, to explain bro, what that is. Way to the left. Yeah, okay, I'm going to ask him to explain what that is. Me? Okay. Yeah, you. Uh, back when LSD was still legal, and it was legal from uh, 1947 until I think 1965, uh, there was a great deal of use of it in treatment of alcoholism and all sorts of other things, uh, in, in conjunction with therapy. And uh, it was doing very, very well. Well, recently, I think a couple of years ago in Scandinavia, they decided to, to get all that research from Harvard and recreate the experiments and see if it really was viable. And it turned out, yeah, it really was. It really was helpful and really was viable. Interesting, there is a lower-powered psychedelic, the name escapes me, that is used in virtually every other country of the world in alcoholism treatment except the United States. So they give people these drugs and that stops them from drinking? Yeah. From probably, you know, I got to the stage, though, where I actually stopped because I, I was trooping too much, so I just like cut it off. But I mean, probably over about three years, I probably, I mean, I don't know how many, but hundreds, hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. He Easily. can still, I, I, he I can still know, write his name in the air. <laughs> can yeah. you still write your name in the air? <laughs> no, I, I never wrote my name in the air. Hey, you know, <laughs> I always tell people too, especially a lot of older guys. I mean, way back when in the sixties, man, the acid was a lot stronger. You yeah, know, it was. By, by the by the late eighties. When they were doing that thing with the, the dead and basically they were pumping out the LSD at the shows and stuff like that, you know, it was it was a lot more, I don't want to say sanitized, but that's the wrong word, but, you know, it was a lot more made for uh, mainstream consumption. Because yeah. they didn't want people, you know, like in the 60s, man, people would jump out buildings and think they could fly, they were tripping so hard. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, didn't they prosecute you as if you were Pablo Escobar or something? I mean, I got to see, they gave me a CCE charge. I was this little, like, uh, you know, college, you know, Grateful Dead, sloppy prep, you know, drug dealer, and they gave me a CCE charge. That's like a kingpin charge. That's you know, weird. 48. Well, yeah. Who, who is your attorney? Where is he now? Oh, I mean, my my attorneys were awful, too, but I mean, I made matters worse. I mean, first off, I was ignorant, you know, the laws and the, and the federal system. I always thought I was too smart. I would never get caught, you know, due you know, because I was living in the middle class suburbs, middle class suburbs, you know, so I thought I had a license or whatever. But, uh, you know, once you get in there, man, and you learn all that stuff, you know, it, I don't know that really matters, man. You just have to, uh, you know, do what you got to do, get through it, you know. Even, even the time, I mean, it sounds like a tremendous, like 21 years and stuff, but when you're in there doing it, you just try to stay busy, man, and focus so that you don't get involved in all the drama and all the stuff that can go on in there so you can make it through and actually get out and have a life again, you know. Let's uh, well, uh, teach me a little bit about the drama that goes on in there. I, 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 Man, you, you spent twenty years in there. I haven't spent a minute. And I don't plan on it, but I can ask well, guys like you. You got you, you got you got a bunch. It's just like a a, a bunch of cunning and, and violent dudes, and they got a lot of time, and they're scheming. You know, and they're, they're trying to make a profit, and they're trying to make life easy. You know, most people are creatures of uh, convenience. So it doesn't matter where you're at, prison or whatever. You know, people can try to. They want to live comfortable. They want to live large. You know, especially guys with big egos. So, you know, they're willing to scheme on people and do all types of ways. So you see all types of, uh, you know, really nefarious type of stuff and, and Machiavellian type of stuff. You know, because dudes just goes have so long to think out and plan. You know, I, I, I've heard, I haven't seen dudes like they'll sleep on it. They'll sleep on a guy for three years and then the guy will get hit. You know, for something that they did three years ago and they'll get killed. 
because they, they slept on the dude. You know, they played him, and they let the dude get back in close to him, and then they got him. They get so, all the time in the world to plan this stuff. There's no what, sense what, of urgency. What's living large in, in prison? What does that mean? What is living large? A guy that's... I mean, you know, you got, you, got, you got your locker full of commissary. You might have a couple commissary, bags of commissary under the bed. You know, you got all your sneaks, your boots laid out. You know, all your khakis uh, ironed out. You know, some nice name brand sweatsuits, which are, which are, you know, depending on where you're at, harder to get. You know, because in there, it's, it's like a scarcity of resources. So, I mean, even, like, like now coming to the world, you know, like I go to Walmart and I see, like, Dickies, you know, Dickies khakis. That was, like, top of the line in prison, man. Dudes would pay money, big money for that type of stuff, you know? And then same thing, like, I came out and I go to Walmart and they got, like, Russell Sweats. You know, in the joint, Russell Sweats, man, that's, like, you know, top of the line. How does that so stuff? Just, how does that stuff get into prison? I mean, are there shipments? Uh, you well, know. some people bring them in from different prisons. Sometimes, you know, one commissary might have that type of material at one time, but then you know they go through a different vendor or whatever. So you know, stuff like that gets in, but it's, it's not all the time. And and all the all the different stuff that gets in there, you know, clothes and sweats and stuff like that. Those are like the ones that everybody in there likes. So that makes them like the high demand. Boutique. Yeah, the boutique. And then, but I say it's a perspective. You know, I come out of the world, I'm like, oh, who's top of the line? And I come to the world going to Walmart. You know, which a lot of people might think Walmart, you know, is, is like a lower, you know, class type of store. And, uh, you know, that's what it offers. So it's like top of the line, bottom of the line. It's just a different perspective. Depends on where you're at. Yeah, that's a fact. Now, this isn't, well, why are you having this guy on your show? It wasn't just because he sold watered-down acid or, or to a fairly decent pot. I'm more interested <laughs> in the clothing business. <laughs> <laughs> it's because while you were in there, you certainly got a fine education and things other than avoiding uh, punch punching you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I um, I got three college degrees. You know, I got a master's degree. I wrote my thesis on outlaw heroes. Plus, I started writing books. You know, that's what I said. Like in prison, you got you got to stay busy. You need something to do. You know, to stay focused because you can get like sucked in to all the BS real quick. You know, and when you get sucked into the BS in there, it means that you end up you might have to kill somebody or you know get killed or whatever. And that's just prison; anything can happen. How do you keep them but, off your back when you're studying to, for for your masters? Well, I played sports. I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not say I won't say I'm like the super athlete type of dude, but I'm I'm pretty athletic. I, I play all sports. Always have been good at sports, so I played a lot of sports. And in prison, where white people are the minority, there's not a lot of white dudes. You know, and I'm not a, I'm not a big dude, but I'm like six foot. You know, came in like six foot one eighty. You know, now I'm I'm a little heavier, but you know, I mean, I always had a decent size. So, you know, as long as long as you get in there and you show, it really it's about showing people that you're willing, you know, to take something to whatever length it needs to go. I mean, it doesn't matter if it doesn't ever go to that length, but if something does escalate, you have to, you know, basically that's what in prison they say: boys fight, men kill. What's interesting is, is you got yourself through college a couple of different ways and times. And I also saw that you, you got married while you were in. Yeah. Not to one of the other inmates. How do you how do, you do all these no. things? These are things that people don't even get together on the outside, let alone in prison. How, how did you pull that off? How do you, Man, get, just, how do you get married? Uh, well, it was a girl I knew when I was a fugitive. You know, I was a fugitive for almost two years, and I was dating this girl. And then, you know, I got busted, and she found out, you know, who I really was. But, I mean, I was selling the drugs, so she was a drug dealer. And then we kind of stayed in contact over the years. You know, and uh, 
I don't know, some stuff manages turns into something or blossoms into something, you know, maybe you never thought it would, but it is. And, you know, I've, I've been out now, um, you know, over two years now and, uh, you know, living with her and staying with her. So, How's yeah, that going? Awesome. Well, I mean, it's just awesome, man. To, to somebody that, you know, like have my back, I mean, because, you know, sometimes you might you might find, you know, you might have uh, crying partners or stuff like that that have your back. But, you know, I know dudes like that. I, I know dudes in a joint, you know, or even some dudes on the street that are like that. But, you know, to have a woman that, you know, has, has that type of loyalty, you know, and, and uh, I mean, she stayed with me, did my whole bid, you know. Mm. Helped me start, you know, the book company helped me do a lot of my books. Really, all the stuff that I've done like writing wise or creatively wise that I started while I was in prison without her I wouldn't have been able to do it well yeah because it was difficult to form a publishing company when you're in prison yeah I mean I I, I can have all the you know I, I have the manuscript but even in there you know I was typing on some old ass typewriter oh excuse me old typewriter that's alright and uh yeah and uh you know I sent them out to her and she would scan them and digitize everything so I mean, because I'm living in, like, an archaic world, you know? Actually, they do have email now. They got that right before I, I went, but, you know, they charge you for it. So typing a book on email would be pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. So there you are in prison. You decide to continue your education. How many degrees did you get while you were in there? I got three. I got an AA, a BA, and a master's. And a master's. Which school? My, uh, my AA was from uh, Penn State. My BA was from the University of Iowa, and my uh, master's was from uh, California State University to make a sales. Wow. Excellent. That's really good. Yeah. You can be proud of that. Yeah. So I how just, do you... I, 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 you know, I had the mindset going in. I, I searched hard and long for programs, and, you know, luckily my mom is really about education, so she did too. So we that's what we wanted to get. We were, like, searching. Because you can get a lot of degrees, you know, through correspondence, because all mine were correspondence. But, you know, we wanted to get, like, a, you know, like a recognized college instead of just, like, you know. Ralph some, School. <laughs> yeah. Some place you never heard of, which might okay. be a good education. I'm not knocking them. But at least you got some name brand education. Yeah, you know, it looks better. Yeah, it does. It you had a lot of trouble uh, <clears throat> with, your, with uh, completing your coursework. Your mom had to go to extraordinary lengths to get you your uh, materials. Oh, yeah. I mean, several, several times, I mean, just... Prison is just real restrictive, man, and somebody might approve something, and the person that actually has to give it to you, they have some type of question. And I had this one literature course one time, and, you know, it's a literature course, man, so they sent like 18 or 20 books, and they were having a problem, like, you know, you're only have, supposed to have five books in your possession. But, I mean, none of the guards, they're not going to write you a shot for that. I mean, that's like almost unheard of, even though it's, you know, you're not supposed to do it. So we had like this little thing, and then finally ended up, my mom, uh, she wrote a senator or something like that, and they called there and they gave me all the books. You know, the dude was kind of mad that I, my parents got a senator called on him, but, you know. <laughs> Sometimes like, you got to do that. I'm just, I'm just like, because that's the only thing most people understand in prison. You know, they're only, they're, like, they, they only understand, like, somebody up the chain of the command, you know. It yeah. doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. But if somebody up the chain of the command says to do it, okay, you got to do it. That's, like, the mentality of, of the people that work in these type of institutions. You know, and, and I would say, you know, kind of up and down the government in, in a lot of ways. So because the senator said, give the kid what he needs, they gave you what you needed. Yeah, because, you know, a senator doesn't want to wear a thing like, you know, they're refusing education to a prison. Yeah. You know, to a person to prison. Nobody wants to wear that. But, you know, the people that work in the institution, they can do whatever they have to work. They got a real powerful union. They don't have to wear anything. 
you know, because the union's going to shrug it off and they're going to keep working. What's that? It's really, I, I, yeah, the, I think the prison system really just real, but that's a whole other matter, but it's a real corrupt system. Was your, uh, was your particular incarceration uh, privately owned or part of the U.S. government? No, I was in federal prison, so all, you know, U.S. government. I was I was never in a, in a uh, private. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the corruption and what goes on that way in prison. I mean, it's not when people hear corruption. It's not like outright corruption, like the guards are taking bribes. You know what I'm saying? They're smuggling drugs in, which to say, you know, that does occur, but that's that's a real rare occurrence. You know, most of the corruption is just how how the whole system is built, like the whole criminal justice system. You know, like they lock up people and they have them as boosted up bail, so they can't even get out. So then they got to sit in there. If they did have a job or whatever, they're, they're going to slowly lose all their stuff and and drain all their money. And then they put them in the worst state, you know, to go to trial and get more like a public pretender. You know, and then <laughs> yeah. it's it's just you know the, the whole way the system's set up. It's you know it's not fair. You know, and then even in prison. I mean, we shouldn't even have have a conversation about prison conditions, you know, if the system wasn't funneling all the people into into it like it is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, because, I mean, I've been in prison. There's dudes deserve to be in prison because there's dudes where there's no black and white. You know, if you violate in some certain way, they'll just kill you. You know, some dudes are just like that, psycho, whatever you want to call it, psychopath or, you know, yeah. I don't know. So some dudes like that, if, if they kill people and they get busted... All right, they deserve to go to prison for life. You know, that's the, that's the, the life they live. That's the price they pay. You know, but in prison now, it's like a whole half the people in prison are like uh, nonviolent drug offenders. That's so, true. Know, but but on, like, on, the, on the violence side, did you ever see anybody killed? I, I never saw anybody like killed outright. I mean, I've seen dudes beat pretty bad. You know, I've been, you know, where, you know, dudes did get killed. Not that I saw, you know. But really, killings killings are a really a rare occurrence. You know that I, even on the compound I was at, that happened on one compound I was at. But uh, you know, you see dudes get beat pretty bad. Dudes get stomped, you know, stabbed up. Now you knew our you buddy. Know, uh, you knew, would you know our buddy Punch when you were in prison? Oh no, I, I mean I know him, but we weren't in prison together. He was in the New York system, so that's you know that's a state system. I was in the, you know the federal. My I was a federal case, so they kind of pop you all over. Uh, did they drag you around? You were more one prison. Oh yeah, yeah. I did the deal. I was on like eight different. I was on eight different compounds, and that's not even counting like being in transit and stuff like that. So one of those twenty what? twenty years, they. Uh, why do they do that? Why do they move you around? Well, for the, the feds, they they go with the concept, right? I guess they they feel they learn from the state system. You know that a lot of ways you get corruption because you got the same prisoner and the same guard, and they they like form relationships and they form common bands, and then that makes the guard more liable. You know, bring stuff in. Whereas the feds are supposed to be, they're constantly moving, you know, people around, staff and uh, prisoners. You know, and then uh, you're not going to get that same type of uh, long-term corruption that I guess they found in a lot of. Or thought they found in a lot of state systems. Uh, now, so there you are in a slammer. You're getting your education, three degrees, uh, including a master's, and then you decide you're going to be a brilliant author. <laughs> How did you cook up this thing of forming your own publishing company? Well, I, I actually, in, in, you know, the University of Iowa is like a, a you know, that's like a, a, I don't know if you want to say famous, but like a, you know, established, like writing, you know, writing school so I was I was taking a lot of writing courses through there and I, and I started 
for one of my my creative works is prison stories, and, and I had to write I don't know like thirty pages or something mm-hmm. for the for the course. And uh, I just took that and I, w- I wanted to expand it into a book because I felt I could go a lot longer, you know. And then I didn't. Then when I finished that whole story, the main storyline through prison stories, I didn't actually have, you know, enough material for like you know a decent like a two hundred page book. So then I had to, you know, write a whole bunch of little I call them like you know big nets or like little, you know, yeah, little yes, yeah. three to six page episodes, you know, interludes that happened, and I kind of put them out through the book, and um. Yeah, and I got the book, and I actually, you know, bought, like, one of those books, like, you know, how to get an agent or how to do a book proposal, and I wrote a bunch of agents, and I actually talked to, I think, about five different agents about my manuscript, you know, I sent it to them, and they liked it, but then they kept wanting, you know, they were like, oh, why don't you, you got to have yourself start on the street, then go to prison and get back on the street, and they kept telling me these, you know, dumb ideas, or their ideas, I don't know if they're dumb, but their ideas that they had, but, uh... I didn't like them, man, so I just ended up doing research on self-publishing and, and put the book out myself because I like the book. You know, I felt it, uh, I put a lot of time in crafting it, you know, making it how I wanted or how I liked it, and a lot of other people, you know, helped me edit and do stuff like that. So Now, did the, prison, did the prison give you a bad time about publishing a book? No, I mean, I, I've been locked up a lot for my writing. You know, they... they they definitely don't like it, you know, but all the policies and programs should have permission to do it, you know, like by law. But they still, they try to make it. I've been locked up in the home like 20 times for, for my writing, and they try to act like it's something else. But everybody knows what it's for, you know, but then they just leave you in there for like 20 or 30 days. They just like to show you that, hey, we're the boss, we run this place, you know. But I, I always kept, kept that, you know, I, I wanted to make my living as a writer, so I just I just kept writing, you know, and, you know, especially when you get angry like that when they lock you in. You know, twenty four seven out, twenty four hours, seven day a week lockdown. You know, and I just used to funnel all my uh, energy and my anger into my writing and into my workout and stuff like that. And so, uh, you so by this time, were you married already? By the time you started putting this book together? Oh, it was, it was almost around the same time. She she'd been helping me, and uh, I think it was like the same year that we probably formed the publishing company and got married. And so the publishing company was in her name and not yours. Yeah, everything, everything is hers. Very clever. Yeah. So how yeah. the how the book do? She's, hey, um, we probably we probably sold close to five thousand copies. I would say. You know, well, that's pretty good kickoff. Yeah, I, well, I say all, all my books. I mean, they don't sell like big numbers out the gate, but you know, over over a period of time, we kind of sustain. You know, I mean, I think I got a real small fan base. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not like you know when I put a book out like they're popping off the shelves. But you know o- over time, man, we, we sell you know pretty decently. So, so when you finally got out of there after what twenty one years, did you have any yeah, trouble? Twenty one years. Any trouble getting a gig? No, nah, I'm actually. Um, I got I got a job at a, at a law firm like right when I got out. You know, as a courier, they kind of uh, give me a chance. You know, through mutual friends, and they they started me out, you know, part time, like twelve hours, and then I worked it into double that, and and even more, and then actually I I, I really scaled back again, you know, to only three days, and it's I still work there right now. I work there like three days a week. And you so, know? and you uh, you started to build your reputation as a a journalist. Yeah, you know, I I mean, luckily. You know, I used to write for Vice when I was in prison. You know, way back when Vice was like this, this little punk rock magazine, like in the, in the early 2000s. So, uh, 
you know, luckily I had that opportunity with Vice. It just grew so much, and and I, I'm like I'm like Vice OG, really. So you know, like a lot of the people that are there now, you know, they read like a lot of my old stuff and uh, a lot of the, the younger editors. So I got good relationship with them, and they you know they give me a lot of work. So I'm um, I'm happy for that. But uh, it just goes how to show you, you know, like, I mean, this was like I was I did a column for Vice magazine mm-hmm. when when I was in the joint for like a couple years, you know, and, and they turned into they're like you know they're big they're now. media. Yeah, it's just, I mean, even, even, even like, you know, before I got out, you know, people were telling me, oh, Vice, 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 and, you know, I was seeing, like, the HBO stuff, and, you know, I, I still, you know, when I got out, uh, to get the magnitude, you know, and even since I've been out, like, the last two years, they did, they just kept growing at this, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, really amazing or lucky that I was even. Yeah, you're lucky them. that you were associated with them because as they grew, your reputation and your career grew yeah. also. Yeah, in fact, I get, it reached, I get, I get a tremendous it, it reached such a pinnacle you even wound up on our show. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey that's good what it's company, about, right? Yeah, hey, that's what it's about. Hey, you became a star when you came on here. <laughs> we we only have the creme de la creme, right, Howard? That's all we have. Yeah, <laughs> is the creme. No, no, creme. We have that's, coffee. Go with the creme. Once yeah, in a while. that's so. what I always consider myself. Hey, top ten percent. Right. The, uh, the the talented tenth, as uh, yeah. <laughs> what's his name said, Garvey. What was it? What about movies? Uh, your stuff getting made into uh, movies is that a potential thing? Well, I'm doing. A, I, I'm working on this one production right now um, with this guy who uh, he has a murder in the park on Showtime right now, and we're doing a documentary about white boy Rick. We're trying to get white boy Rick out of prison. This this producer I'm working with, he's based out of Cleveland. You know, but I mean, he's a heavyweight dude. He he has a real big. You know, uh, list, you know, stuff he's done, and, and he's kind of taking me under his wing. And, uh, I mean, he's taught me a tremendous amount of stuff. I've been working with him for about the past 18 months. And, um, the White Boy Rick documentary, it's, it's, it's almost ready, man. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna actually, you know, being in theaters or on a, a premium cable network this year. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big thing, because I'm, I'm attached as a writer and a producer for that. And, uh, that's like gonna be my really first big project. Uh, or foray into like a, a professional film world. I mean, I, I do a lot of stuff on my own, like around here, St. Louis. We did this little uh, short series we've been working on called Easter Bunny Assassin. And I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I saw that. Got a couple, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's some little crazy stuff, you know, that I like to do, like in my spare time, you know. I mean, you know, it, it's like anything. I, I'm trying to get myself to the point where, uh, you know, I'm proficient, you know, not only in my storytelling, but, you know, in running a set and, and directing a project. You know, because cause you got to be good, man. If, if you want somebody to invest, you know, a couple million, five million, ten million, whatever, on your first project, you know, you you got to be good to pull that off. So that's what I'm kind of uh, honing my chops. So you know how we want to say it, so to speak, right now. Well, now, when you were in the prison, did it occur to you that within this short amount of time, within two years of being out, that you'd be writing and producing a uh, major uh, major documentary for? Uh, Theaters or upscale cable? I mean, really, look, I, I had a two-year plan when, when when I got out, and I kind of had to adjust it to a, a five-year plan. I mean, I thought, I, I wanted to be, not I can't say I thought, I wanted to be, you know, at a, at a more advanced level of position than I, than I am now. I mean, not to say I'm not, I'm not knocking anything I've done. You know, I work hard, but, you know, to me it's about meeting people, creating opportunities, and uh, I've had different opportunities with different people that have been talked about, you know, that, you know, but, but you know when you're in this business, you get stuff like that all the time, you know, but I try to keep it positive, you know, and just keep focusing on more stuff, but, uh, 
yeah, I thought, you know, like I said, I had to adjust my plan. You know, I, I, I thought I would be uh, doing more or in more demand, but, you know, you got to create that demand for yourself. You That's don't true. know when it's going to give it to you. Until you got to create it. We're experts at that around here at Outlaw Radio. <laughs> you got yeah. Howard Lapita sitting here, manager to the star. I'm sitting here. Yep, he's in there, and he sits here every Saturday. Yes, I do. <laughs> and it is my pleasure to do so. Yes. And uh, we have we have taken the same great theory, and that's why we're the number one true crime radio program on Outlaw Radio. <laughs> we're actually the number one true crime radio program in the world. For which we want to thank the Guinness Book of World Records and 8-Track Tapes. We, we always thank them. <laughs> we always make sure we thank them. Not for anything in particular, but no, just, no, it has nothing no. to do with us. We just like thanking. Them. That's right. <laughs> but we are number one in the world. <laughs> Howard says so. So it must be true. It must be true. He wouldn't pull your leg unless you stick it up there and ask him to give it a yank. <laughs> no, Sean, you'll you'll come to Seth, find out. Seth, I, I was I was close. Yeah. Uh, how I screwed that up, I don't know. It's it's, it, it's still the it's the medication. It is. Yeah. I'm 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 so the I'm suppositories. Under, he's I'm on. under a great deal of uh, medication. And not the recreational, the real thing. So, sorry I got your name wrong. Um, what is it? Um, <laughs> I know. Um, back to prison for a second. No. No, we don't want to send him back to prison. No, we're not sending him back to prison. But I'm fascinated by uh, how that all works. And, and when somebody's in prison the way you are in prison... Uh, and for the length of time, yet look at all the things you did on the outside. What what would a day look like? I mean, uh, the day in the life of of you, the prisoner. What what did that? Did you uh, organize it so you'd have time where you would actually? This, this is the time I work, um, or was it haphazard? Well, I mean, everything is in prison is a little haphazard because you got lockdowns. It can you know, throw the variance off the routine at any time, but. Uh, Basically, you know, I always made sure that, like, I had, like, a basically a do-nothing job, you know, so I, I wasn't really responsible to be anywhere, you know, and it might be a job if I'm an orderly, and I might even pay, like, a, you know, some other prisoner to do my job for me. You know, so you got to have, like, a situation like that. Then your time's wrong, you know, then, you know, if I want to, if I want to, you know, send my son writing, I can write. You know, if I want to go to the law library, type, I can type. If I want to go work out, you know, then, then I, I would always get a lot of commentary and a lot of food, too. So, you know, I can make my food when I want. I'm not restricted to go. You know, because every time when you got to go to child, man, it takes a long time. It could be a big ordeal. A lot of stuff always happens in the child hall, you know, for whatever reason. So, Like, you know, like me, whoa, back up. Like what? I mean, dudes get hit. Dudes get stabbed. You get in confrontations. You get in situations that might lead to something out in the yard. Might be some type of racial stuff. I mean, stuff can just jump off. So, you know, I, I always went by the premise, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna minimize. I mean, it's prison, so you're always gonna be, you know, that stuff is always around you. But you gotta minimize, you know, not your confrontations with the situations, but you know, your contact. You know, because if if you're a white dude in prison and so the white dudes and something goes down and you don't act accordingly, you know, something racial or whatever, and you don't act accordingly, then your own race is gonna be out for you. So you know, it's a real delicate situation. And you kind of gotta walk the tightrope. Sounds very unpleasant. You know? Yeah, and then you know, and and not to say not a, not it's not like a lot of people fall out, but you know sometimes you know maybe one, two, three out of ten fall off. You know, and you know when I say fall off, like you know different things can happen to them. You know, anywhere from you know just getting beat up or you know took or raped or you know even killed. You know, but the the more extreme, the more extreme something is, the less likely it is to happen. 
You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. you know, you got to take that for what it is. It's not like, you know, this stuff is happening every single day. Mostly prison is boring. And then there's just like little outbursts every now and then. So, you know, you get used to it after a while, but so, so, it's a lot but, different. It's so, a lot so, different so, in the world. So tell me what your day looked like. I mean, I, I would just wake up, you know, usually go work out, get something to eat, come back, go to the law library, you know, but you, you got places, like they have counts and different stuff like that, so moves, it's not like you just got free movement, you know, they'll have 10 minute moves, so you got to wait different places, and then you got to be back for the four o'clock count, knowing that at night I could have a basketball game or a softball game or something like that, go out on the yard, maybe hang out with the homeboys for, you know, until the move, and then, you know, come back in, get ready to start my day again. Mm. But it's, it's, you know, you just, like, establish a routine at whatever place and time you're at, you know. Nothing, it's nothing set routine. It's just, you know, you got to stay busy, stay focused, keep your mind occupied. Now, let's go back to uh, when you got popped and went to trial. When they told you that they were going to treat you like you were, you know, Pablo Escobar, you know, you were the biggest uh, crime dude they ever had come down the pike, weren't you rather emotionally taken aback? I don't know, because it, it was more like, uh, I mean, that was something that was, like, written after the fact. So I think, you know, at the time, that wasn't, like, something, you know, they were just calling me, you know, like a teenage LSD kingpin or something like that. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I was surprised, you know, that the, 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 the time was so much. So I was, like, thinking, you know, like, I don't really carry a gun or anything like that. And they're, like, talking 20, 20, you know, 10 to 20 to life, right, off the jump. And I was like, what? You know, so I mean, I was a little taken aback, but you know, I, I learned more about the, the charge and, and like how people kind of, I don't want to say, you know, immortalize it or whatever, but whatever they do to it, you know, attaches big significance to it. I learned that more after. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever significance they were attaching to you, they attached you for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did. Uh, you know, and, and you know, the other thing about prison, right? Those, those years that you do are like stripes. Like, you could just walk in with, I've been in 20 years, and everyone's like, oh. You know, you're like, that's like a plus. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm, t- I'm telling you, that's what it's like. So you, you got know, 20 like years, if, if, how many people did you kill? Yeah, I mean, that, they just think, you know, they're like, oh, if he's been in 20 years, I'm not messing with that dude, because who knows what he's capable of. So you can just kind of throw that around, but, you know, especially the, the last couple joints I was at, I was in low security joints, and some dudes are coming in doing like one to three, and it's just funny, right? Because you just act like real stern, and they oh he's been that long, and they're like like almost petrified. Of you. <laughs> they say, uh, this is here's Mark. Mark Boyer has a question. What is yeah, it? Yeah, in uh, in in rereading some of your uh, material, I found uh, something that <clears throat> I found fascinating, and it appears to me that the thing that's valued the most by inmates, amongst other inmates, is honesty. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would say, because just, you know, everybody, uh, man, there's it's a lot of game. Everybody's trying to scam you. Everybody's working some type of, you know, angle or whatever, because it's like, you know, you got limited resources. You got scarcity resources, and, you know, dudes are scrambling for them. Like, even, like, what's in the prison, you know, guys are trying to live off the land. You know, some dudes don't have any money on the street. Some dudes don't have any family on the street. You know, and and sometimes... You know, when it gets to that point and you feel somebody, you know, scammed or, or you or was dishonest to you, you know, then it might it might turn into physical violence. And when it turns into physical violence, there's a chance of somebody getting killed. It's like Bob Dylan said, to live outside the law, you must be honest. 
Well, I mean, it, it, it's best too, you know. And the, but but really, the war on drugs just just messed so much of that up because you know it's, a, it's like people they start throwing so much time at people and people because they weren't willing to do the time and they they start you know snitching on people and it, it just really uh, you know kind of I, I equate it to the war on drugs to almost a thing where like uh, you know like a kid in high school you know gets busted with weed and and, and the cops like interrogate him and make him snitch on the whole high school. You know, it's just, I mean, it's its really ridiculous and, and incredible, you know, to the lengths and extremes that uh, they took everything that they've done in this country, you know, since the late 80s and well into the 90s. What's interesting you know? is that, uh, and talking to, to cops, is that, yeah, you get one of these guys, they'll roll over on their own mother. And yet the cops have this thing, but they won't roll over on each other. And yet they, they take pride in getting other people to snitch on other people. No, I mean, it, it, no, it, it, they just do. They, they, they're real dirty. They're, well, there's, there's like no honesty to, to them. The way that they play the game, the feds, you know, no integrity. You know, I mean, I, I can respect a killer if he has some sort of, uh, you know, honesty and integrity. You know, I, I can respect him. I'll, I'll bring him to my house. You know, because I know the only reason he would kill me is if someone paid him to. So. You know, because I'm not going to do anything to make him want to kill me. You know, so, he's got that respect so level. A professional is a professional is a professional is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, before yeah. before you got picked up, when you were on the run, uh, I understand you you faked a suicide. Yeah, yeah, I faked my suicide, and then uh, I was declared a uh, top 15 U.S. Marshal's most wanted list for. Whatever reason, <laughs> whatever reason, maybe <laughs> maybe because I made them look bad, you know, because I was this little, you know, supposedly, you know, upper middle class kid that was just supposed to, you know, walk and, you know, tell them everything they wanted or whatever. I, I don't know what I, they thought I was supposed to do, but I didn't. I didn't do that, you know. I I, I didn't want to go out like that, and uh, you know, I, I took an ex- a place further. I had I had a little bit of money. So I was like, you know, I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get out of town. You know, I'm not even gonna deal with this. This is not looking good. I don't like my options. I'm not trying to go to prison. I was only, you know, like 20 years old. So, you know, I, I planned it out. I faked my suicide. And uh, how did you? How did you? Only... How did you do that? What did you do? Yeah, how did you fake the suicide? Well, I just I just set like a scene, and I like the car with the suicide note. So, you know, I put like a wallet, you know, with money, and and made it seem like I was on this thing. And then I actually jumped out, and there were people walking on the path, and I jumped out. And I was like, he jumped, he jumped, he jumped. And then years, years later, when I was doing a, a whole bunch of Freedom of Information Acts, like at the end of the 90s, I'd actually read, like, the original, uh, you know, Park Ranger report, you know, National Forest or whatever. Yeah. And it said how the people had women saw the thing, and they, like, reported to the person, and that's how, you know, they made the first report that somebody jumped. You know, and it's just funny. You know, that's... I did that, you know, thinking I was sick when you know I was a kid. But actually, you know, I actually uh, I staged a suicide on the wrong side of the dam, so the uh, the body, you know, where they dragged the river for two weeks and no body showed up, so they declared my suicide a hoax. Ah, if you'd have jumped on, the, if you'd have done the other side, they figured you, know, you would have went out, yeah, to the Atlantic Ocean. But you know, hey, I, I was like one of those kids. Like I, I was, I was so smart, I was dumb. You're a kid from the middle to upper middle class. Did you not have strong representation? How did you not get, get less than? Lawyer. Well, I well mean, you did. You had to, uh, kids from that neighborhood don't do 21 years, do they? Yeah, I mean, you know, not usually, but uh, I can say too. Um, at the time, like when my case came out, my case came about. There was a, 
you know, Northern Virginia. That's where I was in Northern Virginia. And a lot of, they were having a lot of Northern Virginia and like Southern Maryland cases, and it was all DC black. So they were making like a big deal about this at the time. So I don't know if they were actively looking for cases. I mean, I, I don't know what was happening, you know, on that side and in their uh, brain power when they were calling shots or whatever. But, you know, I, I feel like it was a witch hunt, like they were targeted. And then, you know, I compli- I mean, I, I'm man enough to say, you know, I did complicate matters. You know, and increase the amount of time I did because, you know, I took off and thought I was an outlaw fugitive and all this stuff or I was in a movie or whatever. But, you know, it was still, you know, way too much time and, uh, just their tactics, man. I, I just don't, you know, the whole tactics I, I don't appreciate. I think they should, uh, shut the DEA down. That's my personal opinion. They don't even deserve, you know, because they fund themselves by seizing money from people. You know what I'm saying? That's crazy. You know? Jeez. Strange days have found us, and you wonder, yeah. and you wonder, is there something wrong with the system? Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's corrupt on a lot of levels, but not so, corrupt in the ways you might think. Since you've been out, are you being watched? Or they, they... Seth Ferrati. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Seth yeah, Ferrati. Seth Ferrati writes for a Vice, a movie producer now, documentary producer. You'll see his name on the credits next year. Good luck, Seth Ferrati. Thanks for being on True Crime Uncensored. Hey, bro. Bro. Radio. Yeah. Bro. Uh, yeah. What's next? Magic Man Allen and the Demons of Decadence on Outlaw Radio, USA.com. Outlaw Radio Live. OutlawRadioLive.com Yeah. 